Let's take our Bibles and we'll turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are two weeks deep, or this is the second week, two weeks deep into our latest sermon series. And our series we are entitling, When Jesus is Your King. And the concept here is to say, what does it look like? What does discipleship look like? The concept here is to try and understand, how do I know if Jesus is my King? The concept here is to help us to, um, to see who Jesus is and what He called people to more clearly. We love to look at Jesus as a church, don't we? I know it's awesome to see what Paul has to say. And we need to read Paul and find out um, a better perspective. But it's so important for us as a Christian church to constantly go back to find out who Jesus really is. And that's why we try with, with, with regularity to go back and say, let's just look, let's go to the source, let's go to the hub, let's go to the center, let's keep going back to find out what Christianity really is all about. So that's why we want to keep going to Jesus. So we're going to look at this for the next number of weeks, okay? Um, we're going to be walking through this. So if you're in Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to go ahead and read this. Let me just preface this by saying this, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it is one of the best known, but I think also can be one of the most, uh, at least call it understood. We, we've, we've, we've taken this a lot of different ways. Um, so that's why we're going to look through this. And uh, what I want to do is I want to read this section called the Beatitudes today. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples, they came to him. And he opened his mouth. And he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now please... Let's not blow past these and say generally this is what we're thinking about. Let's, let's make sure we, we tie in with these. Today we are simply going to look at that verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But, but let's not blow over these. Let's not skim past this. I know sometimes when we're familiar with things, it's easy to get to the end. Let's not get to the end. Let's, let's read all of these. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So keep your thumb there because we're going to continue on here. But what I want to do is just pray for us and then we'll jump in. Lord, help us today. We ask, we beg, we plead. We come to you realizing that we need your help. 
And we also come to you admitting that you are just so generous to give help. So we're excited. We're anticipating. We're looking forward to seeing what you have to say to us today. Help us with that, we pray in your name. Amen. So here's what we're talking about today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what I want to do is I want to just ask three key questions. Number one, what did Jesus mean when he said blessed? Number two, who are the poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And number three, why does it matter that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Okay? So those are the three things that we're trying to accomplish today. What does it mean when we say blessed? Who are the poor in spirit? And third, what does it matter when we talk about the kingdom of heaven? So let's just jump right into it and let's take a look at this. These beatitudes, this idea of the word of beatitude. Let me start by saying this. It has nothing to do with our English word attitude. Okay? It doesn't. It actually comes, and, and this is not my strength, so I had to do a little reading, a little you know, study this week, but on good authority. It, it, it comes from the word uh, beatus. I know Matt knows more about Latin than I do, so uh, I'm sure he can get it for me, help me with my pronunciation. But it, it means fortunate. So the word blessed here is saying something like how fortunate you are. How, how fortunate you are. So let's draw the opposite real quick just to make sure we understand it. When Jesus said blessed here, we also know that throughout the book of Matthew, he also has one other key word. And this other key word is woe. Okay, W-O-E, woe. That word woe, that means sorrow. It means regret. When Jesus says woe to people, he's saying, what, you, you're doing so well that you don't need me? Really? And he's saying, that's a tragedy. That's a shame. You, you can handle this? You can do this on your own? So when Jesus says, whoa, we know so often he's saying that to people who felt like they could pull this all together. They could, they could do this Christianity kind of thing. So woe is the opposite of what we're looking at here. Jesus isn't saying, whoa, I'm so sorry for you that you're poor in spirit. Instead, he's actually saying, blessed are you. You found nothing in yourself to be proud of? You find nothing but sin and temptation? You're struggling? You feel weak? The the translation I like the best for this word blessed is congratulations. Congratulations. So you can read that. Congratulations to those of you that are poor in spirit. Congratulations, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's an attaboy. It's a pat on the back. Uh, I heard one guy say it's a biblical high five. (laughs) That's what the Beatitudes are about. Let me make sure we get one thing clear as we look at at these. Um, The Beatitudes are descriptive. They're not prescriptive they are encouragements not commands 
So remember a few weeks ago we were in Exodus 34, and the context of that was built around when Moses went up to Mount Sinai. And what did he get when he got up there? He got the law. He got the Ten Commandments, the law that was given. God gave him commandments. But when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, these are not commandments. These are encouragements. For sinners that are under the law, commands, they really just amount to wishful thinking, don't they? It's where God says, this is what you need to do. This is the way you need to live. And, and they run into that and they think, again, I've run into the wall. I can't do it. I don't have the power. I can go to Home Depot, as great a place as that is. But I can't find a tool that can actually move me forward. I need help. I need help. It's like, it's like you know, hooking a hamster up to a, uh, one of those, you know, remember sleigh bells? Like, like that kind of, I'm picturing, I got a picture of a hamster trying to pull one of those sleighs. It, this whole song changes, doesn't it? When, when you're trying to picture that, because what's that hamster going to do when you hook him up to the front of that sled? Nothing. And I don't even care if you, you know, if you, if you start calling it, if you start, even if you get a whip out, is that hamster going to be able to pull that sled? Not a chance. But what we find in Scripture, when we come to the commands that God has put onto us in our lives, you're going to find the same thing. When I hook my will up to God's commands, as hard as I try, I am not equipped. I don't have the strength to do this in and of myself. It's impossible. So when Jesus is speaking to them, though, he's not giving them a new law. What he's doing is he's giving them encouragement, and that encouragement actually gives wind behind our sails. It helps us to move forward. So Jesus is going to say, boy, if you want to understand what God's like, if you want to understand what the kingdom is like, let me tell you, here's some signs. This is going to show you where you are with God. Now, our culture has their own Beatitudes, don't they? Our culture has their own things that they sit there and go, congratulations. Man, that's that's when you're really making progress. What are some of the things that, you know, as you think about, we, we, we do this often, we ask questions, and I, and I love to get some feedback, but what are some of the areas that you would sit there and say, man, this, this is what our culture would say, as opposed to saying, boy, congratulations, you are poor in spirit. What are some of the things that our culture would applaud? What are some of the, if you had to write a beatitude for our culture, what would you say some of those are? Okay, lots of money, so congratulations. You've got a lot of money. You are going to have a good life. That would be a beatitude, right, that our culture would have. What's, what's another one? Yeah, boy, congratulations. You just happen to be born in the right gene pool. So you have money and looks that you didn't actually work for, but that means that you're going to have the inside track on everything in your life and your life is going to go better than those other people who don't, who are not popular, who are not in the center. Congratulations. What, what are some others? 
<laughs> yeah, in Maine. All right, congratulations. You got a new truck. You know, and 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 that truck is going to make your life meaningful and powerful and 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 these types of things, right? Just to to think, you've got the money to buy what you want. You've asserted yourself on the dealership, and you won. Um, that that's another another potential. What are some other ones? Okay, yeah, and and that can be two ways, can it? Congratulations to the kid because we know that your future must be bright. Because you're going to Ivy League. But it could also be to parents, right? Congratulations. You were a good enough parent to get your kid through and help them to learn and get them on the good track for their life. Tim. Yeah. Congratulations. Because you are confident. People look at you and think, man, I wish I was like him. Congratulations. You, you have earned that acceptance in front of people. There's a lot of different areas that our culture sits there and applauds, aren't there? There's a lot of things that we sit there and say, man, if I only had this, if I only did this, then we would really get things done. Let's check, though, because part of what we want to see is, boy, is our culture right? We know that they're not. We know that our culture's not right, and yet it's so easy because we get to hear those beatitudes from our culture all the time. Congratulations, your marriage seems to get along effortlessly. You must be a unique individual, that's all. Congratulations, there's no pain or suffering in your life. Every day though, if you really boil it down, what we hear from our culture is this message. Repent, because the kingdom of this world, it's here to stay. Nothing is ever going to change, so you know what? Just turn away from Jesus and just give up and give in. But honestly, when you think through the messages of our world, when we watch TV where we hear you know, um, about this powerful person or popular person, let's just ask this one question. Can you really think of one person who pushed his, his or her way through life with that dark kind of living by these same kind of rules that we just listed. And, and when they came to the end of their lives, they were satisfied and radiant and wise and humane. The kind of life that you sat there and went, man, that's the kind of person I want to be. Can you really think of one? We all know that these things are wrong. But honestly, when there's money on the line or when, when power's up for grabs or when there's an argument to be won, it's so easy to repent of Jesus and just follow our culture. But last week we saw when Jesus said repent, what he was saying is, essentially there's a new sheriff in town. And he's giving his beatitudes and showing how we show our allegiance to him when everything's on the line. So he's redefining. So when he says blessed, again, what he's saying is congratulations, you get it. Congratulations, you're headed the right direction. So let's ask the second question. Second question is not just what did Jesus mean by blessed, but who are the poor in spirit? 
Because this is a pretty important question, isn't it? Our world would look at this and say, poor in spirit, that's the last thing you want to be. It's interesting because at the end of this, in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things we find out is that the people are absolutely just astonished. They can't believe what they've just heard. It's shocking. One, one, um, one translation actually says the people were thunderstruck. They're, they're just amazed. But now we're going to see why. Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, is going to say something that is totally unexpected. It's counterintuitive. Remember that Matthew was written very much to a bunch of Jewish people as, as a culture. These are people who understood the Bible very well. These are people who grew up in, in probably fairly moralistic homes. These are people who, who had a good context. So he constantly goes back to history. He constantly quotes the Old Testament. He constantly shows fulfilled prophecies. I would call this a Sunday school crowd. Okay? Jesus is kind of writing to the Sunday school crowd. People who were informed, following him. He knew where they were. But Jesus is going to stand up in the Sermon on the Mount and he's going to say something that is very shocking to them. He's telling the people who think that they are good that they're going to hell. He's telling all the people who think that they're important that they don't count. He's telling all the people who think that they're smart that they failed. He's telling all the sinners. And with that, um, whores, and, and contextualize it for today, people who struggle with porn, people who struggle with, with alcohol, people who are, who are weaklings and they turn away from him, uh, what he's saying to them is you are the future of the world. Now the Pharisees, this, this, this crowd, the leaders of the Sunday school crowd, were looking at this saying, no, no, you guys are the problem with this world. If it wasn't for people like you, the society would finally be fixed. If it wasn't for the people that Jesus is talking to here, then this would be a good world. But Jesus instead is saying, um, you're the ones that I'm going to build my kingdom with. It's the weak. It's the powerless. So we really need to understand, who are the poor in spirit? First of all, let me just say this. It doesn't mean that you're dull or boring. Okay, That's not what he's talking about when he talks about the poor in spirit. Uh, Jesus adds life to us, right? He makes us attractive. He should make your life attractive and energetic. That's what Jesus does. So he's not talking about a, a class of people that nobody wants to hang around with. That's not what he's talking about with the poor in spirit. But Jesus is saying that the good life really starts with poverty. Life begins with death. A better future begins with facing our past. So when he talks about the poor, he doesn't mean the people who also, he, he's also not talking about people who don't have any money or few possessions. That's not what he's talking about here either. Because he adds that little phrase at the end, poor in spirit. So it's not a, a, a financial thing. So then who are the poor in spirit? The poor in spirit are the sinners who realize that they have lost everything. The poor in spirit are the sinners who realize that they've squandered their chance at real life. But in their desperation, 
they reach out for Jesus. The poor in spirit look at the cross and they see the Son of God dying for their forgiveness and they know that they can't put any claim on God. They send their way out of all entitlements. That old spirit of demandingness, it died. So Jesus is saying, the poor in spirit are those who see themselves accurately. Now that's not our approach today, is it? If you were trying to build a team, so if you were doing your you know, fantasy football selections, or, or if you're trying to build a team um, uh, for, for whatever, whatever it is you're doing, we wanna, when we want to start a movement, and churches are guilty of this, when we want to start a movement, who do we want to find? What the cool, hip people. People who have like weird jobs and drink unique coffee. We want people who, who, um, who do a great job, you know, play uh, an instrument in a band and just don't care. You know what I mean? We want, we want people that are, are, are artsy and young and cool and amazing. We want people that um, the world admires. We want to be funny. We want to be impressive. We want to be great communicators. But who does Jesus actually look to when he starts his movement? Okay, the poor. The poor in spirit. He, he, he looks at losers. At the rejects of society. Jesus is coming to them. I mean, that's, that's not how our world operates. Who would start a religion with these kind of people? It seems crazy. But the thing that we need to understand is that Jesus does that. Jesus, because he's the king, and Jesus provides everything they need. We get the mercy, we get the help, we get the strength, we get these things given to us, and he gets the glory. Because everyone's going to look at us and say, they couldn't do it. So what does it look like to be poor in spirit? Take your Bibles, and I want to turn over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Each of the Gospels contain a story similar to this, but this one is different. I think it's a different woman. Okay? But I, I thought Luke's passage really just nails it. So maybe instead of stating it outright, Luke put it in his Gospel in more of a narrative than, than just restating this, paris, this, this truth from Jesus. But look in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. Let me draw a picture of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with them. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And just picture this. This would be a, a large, wealthy house. Pharisees were very wealthy, older men. They had a lot of power and position. And when they held a dinner, it was something. It was also an open room. Others would come to watch them eat dinner. Because it was that important. It was that powerful. They literally reclined, you know, so you kind of laid down by the table. And they would, they would prop themselves up and eat. And this was a, a picture of status. Jesus got invited into a Pharisee's house. This, this would look like um, some really big event. Verse 37. 
Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and she anointed them with ointment. So here's a woman and what do we know about her? We don't know the details, but everybody knew this woman had a reputation. And what does she do? She comes in and as Jesus is kind of laying his feet away from the table, as he's eating with these important called dignitaries, she comes and begins to wipe his feet with her hair and her tears. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him because she's a sinner. Notice he didn't say it out loud. He said it to himself. But Jesus answered him and said to him, Simon, I have something I need to say to you. And he answered, he said, say it, teacher. So Jesus launches into a, a short parable here. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you've judged rightly. Verse 44, then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time she came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What does it look like to be poor in spirit? What does it look like to be poor in spirit? Do you see that there's a warning in this passage? Do you see that there's a warning in this passage? Who is the one that Jesus held up and said, that's my girl? That's what it looks like to follow me. If you want to know what it looks like to be right before God, that's what it looks like. It was this woman who had this reputation that everyone in town knew. But what was he saying about Simon the Pharisee? What was he saying about Simon the Pharisee? How would you say it? Yeah. Simon was generally rude. 
He treated it like it was a huge privilege for Jesus to get to be in his house, even to the point that he was, he didn't even offer him anything to wash. He, even the most customary things he didn't take care of. So what was Jesus saying to Simon through this parable? Through his speech? What was he trying to confront with Simon? Yeah. Simon loved little, didn't he? And yet, who had the degree? Who had the knowledge? Who had the training? Who had taught others on these things? Who was well known in the community for being righteous? Simon was. Isn't the bottom line here that Jesus is essentially saying this? Listen, the biggest barrier between you and Christ may very well be even your Christianity. The biggest barrier between you and Christ might be the wealth of knowledge that you have you know, brought into your brain. Why? I'll tell you why. Because sin, it lurks in our goodness. Sin hides. It comes across as an invitation to virtue. Let me tell you what I mean. We really feel the pain of our bad sins, don't we? When we do something that everyone else can see, that we can see, when we can sit there and go, oh man, I can't believe I did that, we feel the pain of that sin. But when we do things, we'll call them good sins, we feel good. We feel right. We even feel blessed for that. So, so picture it. Maybe somebody commits adultery society sees that hears that that person is embarrassed that person feels the weight of that sin don't they but on the other hand there's someone else who will look at that person and they will judge them for that rather than feeling compassion rather than pointing them to jesus they feel good they feel justified god look at how right i am because i'm so indignant about what they've done and yet it is it is right to call sin sin but there is a pride there is a i couldn't do that i would never do that there is a part inside which sits there and says, I'm not like that sinful person. Guess what? That is where sin is even more deadly and venomous. And that's not what our good sins tell us, right? They don't warn us about this. We, we don't run into our good sin and think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just felt that. I can't believe I just did that and said, my sin lies to me. My sin flatters me. Oh, you're such a good person. You don't give way to sin like that. You don't think like that. You don't act like that. You're not even tempted like that. I'm a good person. I'm not like those people. I'm not like this woman. I don't have this kind of reputation. What was going on in Simon? Simon was sitting there thinking, I'm so glad I'm not like her. 
And that was sin. It was dangerous. Our lying hearts tell us that we are just fine. But we're not fine. It's like having a disease. Maybe the rest of our body is in perfect shape. Maybe the rest of us feels good. We feel strong. We feel powerful. And yet, when that disease has begun to take root, we need someone to go in and get that out. Jesus loves us too much to just, you know, paint over our imperfections. You can look at my cars. My cars are both getting very old. And I had to do a little work on the Suburban this year, fiberglassing, just to kind of get through inspection, right? But if you were to look underneath that Suburban, because I've had the opportunity to do that a couple times this year, if you begin to look under, you can start to see the, the rust and the rot that's beginning to settle into the frame. She's an old girl. But that rot is beginning to take hold inside there. If I painted the outside, took it to, to Meineke or, or to uh, you know, like, uh, one of the car care places and had them paint on a fresh coat of paint, it would not change the reality of what's going on underneath. In the same way, Jesus loves you too much to sit there and just spray paint over and act like everything is okay. Instead, he's going to take the Sermon on the Mount with his disciples, and you are part of his disciples, and he's going to say, let's, let's meddle. I've got to poke a hole. I see a rust spot. It's like when the contractor comes over to your house and you say, we've got a little soft spot over here. Would you take a look at it? He never walks over there and kind of looks at it and goes, yeah, that's okay, and covers it up. What's he start to do? He starts to dig at it. And you're like, no, 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 don't do that. My, my floor's not going to look good right there. Someone's got to get into the rot. And Jesus says, I love you too much. I'm going in there. I'm going in there. But really, standard religion that our culture embraces is the purpose of denial. It's supposed to cover these things up. It's supposed to spray paint over these things. You and I are far more prone to good sin than we think. We need to repent of the good things that we do more times than we realize. I mean, aren't there times you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to do this very kind thing to them because I, you know, I don't want anyone to know about it. I'm just going to do this thing in secret. But inside what we're thinking is, I'm such a good person. I don't want anyone to know about this. Other people would, you know, have to drop a hint, but I'm not going to drop a hint because I'm such a... Is that good? Is that okay? No. No, it's pride. We are far more sick. Uh, Will, William Beveridge was a, a pastor from 300 years ago. Listen to what he said. This is honest. This is right on stuff. He's so true for a pastor. I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot hear or preach a sermon, but I sin. I cannot give alms or receive the sacrament, but I sin. I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my confessions of sins are further aggravated of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears need washing. And the very washing of my tears needs still to be washed over again with the blood of my Redeemer. Do you recognize that? I do. I mean, I don't, I don't recognize it as deeply as I need to. 
That's for sure. This is hard. It's painful work to go into these places. But even this morning, it would be easy for us to maybe think, I'm not like that. That's probably not a good sign. Instead, we want to follow Jesus' advice from last week. Repent. 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 Because the kingdom of God is right here. The poor in spirit are the people that Jesus can help. The poor in spirit are the people that Jesus can help because they really know their needs. And they bring those needs to Jesus. The poor in spirit are just as sinful as everyone else. They're just blessed to be able to walk in the light, in honesty, in transparency. They don't have to keep the charade any longer. When they come into the presence of Jesus, they get something we've talked about before, but but they get the gospel, and they get safety, and they get time to change. Isn't that what we need? So we talked about what does he mean by blessed? We talked about who are the poor in spirit. Let's just hit this last one. What does it matter that theirs is the kingdom of heaven? First thing I want us to see is it is it theirs will be the kingdom of heaven? Is that what it says? What does it say? Back in Matthew chapter uh, five. Is now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. Remember we said last week that the kingdom of heaven is God's people living in God's place under, by God's rules with His blessing. And what Jesus is saying, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, He's saying, if you are someone who has that poor in spirit view, who says, God, I, I am aware of my sin and I need help. Would you help me? God, I'm not better than that person. Would would you help me? God, I am somebody who needs a Savior, not an assistant. Would you help me? Jesus is saying, those people, they're already living in heaven. Now, it's not the way it will be someday. But what he's saying is, you are the people who get to live in my presence. It's like going back to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's like jumping ahead to the end of Revelation. God's saying, right this moment, with all of your weakness, with all of your need, with all the frustrations that go on in this world, these are the people who get to live as my people, in my presence. You're the people who who live under my rules. I give you a whole different way that you can live. And you're the people who are going to be blessed with my strength. I'm going to bless you there. Living under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ today and experiencing His blessing right now. How did they get entrance to that? How did they get into this club? 
All of this is so counterintuitive. The bottom line is that that morally serious God who cares about my good sins, quote unquote, good sins. And each one of those good sins deserves um, punishment. But that morally serious God said, I will take that into account and it will be charged and it will be laid on the cross of Jesus. taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross. That's how they get in. But these are people who can walk with God. Have you ever sat there and said, boy, I wish I could just ask God a question. Have you ever said, where is God? I, I wish this world were under control. How can this be happening? These people are going to experience more and more day by day, that God is in control, that God does care, that they can ask these types of questions because they come as the poor in spirit. So what would it look like? What does it look like? How do you know then? If we're talking about this, how do you know that you are somebody who's poor in spirit? Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, an essay called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And it really focuses on 1 John chapter 4. And he looks in there and he says, okay, here's five signs. So let's just take a look at those real quick. Five things that you could look for if you want to say, boy, God, thank you. I'm finding out that I'm poor in spirit. Or if this morning you look up and you go, God, I'm not poor in spirit, but you've given me the remedy. I can repent. But here's five of them. Number one. If you revere and embrace Jesus as the Son of God crucified for your sins. That's number one. Do you revere and embrace Jesus as the forgiver and the leader and the treasure of your life? That's what we got to see two weeks ago, wasn't it? Number two. If you hate sin and the corruption of this world and you want to break free from it and live for Christ, That's another really good sign that you are growing in grace. Edwards had a third one. If you receive the Bible as the word of God, and if your heart is open to it, whether the message is comforting or if it's confronting, that's another really good sign that you are poor in spirit. Number four, if you hunger and thirst for sound theology, and your eyes are being opened to who God really is and how short life really is and how much is at stake, that's another really good sign, isn't it? Do you see that in your life? Finally, if you love your brothers and sisters and if you feel unworthy to be among them, that's another really good sign. When we see these kind of things happening in our life, we know that what's happening in us is coming from heaven. So the bottom line here is that Jesus is saying to his disciples, to his followers, the only way that you're going to become spiritually rich is to give everything up. To be empty of your pride, of your ego, of your need to be right. To be able to finally say, I need help. 
And man, that's a hard place to be. Sandy and I were just talking about this morning. You hit the wall. And not many of us are comfortable. I want to ask you again to keep praying for them because, man, such a hard place to feel like we're going to have to lean on everybody else for strength, for hope. We love to be the ones that bring the meals, don't we? We just hate to be the ones that get them. We love to be the ones who say, let me come over and work on this project for you. We struggle to let somebody else come in and do it for us. You know when you start thinking through that how hard that is for us as New Englanders. It's pride. It's our good sin. But the way that we we go through this, Jesus says, be emptied of your ego. Why? What does Christ fill? He fills emptiness. Not fullness, right? Who does Jesus raise from the dead? Alive people? No, it's dead people. Where does Jesus go when he's going to wipe tears from people's eyes? People who have dry eyes? No, it's those that are weeping and crying. Jesus is saying, hey, give up your life. Give up your okayness. Give up your future. Give up your plans. The way that I work is through the people that are poor in spirit. And just pour it all at the feet of Jesus. All of our sin and even more, all of our goodness, all of our righteousness, all of our A++ plus plus pluses we come to Jesus Christ really impoverished and what does he do he fills us with his best Lord help us help us to be the kind of people who are willing to really lean on you help us to be the kind of people God, because it's so hard for us who can come and admit our need. God, if we don't know what our need is, I pray that you would be lovingly, gently, and yet painfully willing to step in and show us, God, is there pride here? God, is there is there arrogance? Is there good sin that's residing in me that is blocking me from really receiving from you? And Lord, let me repent of it. Lord, be a, let us be people who rejoice to repent because the whole Christian life is repentance. Thank you. Be with those that are struggling with us today because really, it should be all of us. In your name we pray. Amen.